So we're going to study his word. If you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to open it up to Ephesians. So we close out this series, Ephesians chapter 6. It's been 16 weeks in this letter. I hope it's been encouraging to you. I know it has to me, just studying and interacting with this glorious letter from Paul. We're going to close it out today. If you'd follow along, I'm going to start reading in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 18. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I am sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask again that as we open your word, you would transform our hearts and our minds, that you would make us the kind of church that you meant to unleash on the world 2,000 years ago. We would be your people, faithful, with undying love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the language that we use, the patterns of speech that we have in the church would be reflective of the gospel. We need you for this. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So there was a really popular reality TV show that came out years ago called Duck Dynasty. How many of you watched it? Some with morbid curiosity maybe, but we watched the show. And one of the things, if you saw the show, that, um, that became a pattern from the very beginning is that every episode would end with what? You'd have the family around this big table Right, and one of them's got the green cup, I forget his name, but you're right, it's the whole family that's there and they're just enjoying each other and conversing and laughing and talking about the things that have been sort of the theme of that particular episode. And you know, I tend to be really kind of cynical about those kinds of things. I'm like, yeah, right, that's really not what was happening. They weren't really having those conversations. It was all staged. I tend to think that way about reality shows in particular. Um, but you know, because not all of our conversations, I'm sure not all their conversations are like TV worthy. I'm sure not all their conversations are as chipper as they were in the programs. But, but here's the thing that I couldn't get away from is I felt like when I watched those conversations play out that they genuinely enjoyed each other. There was something around that table that family is supposed to be like, and it made me wonder, how many people watch this show out of morbid curiosity? How many watch this show sort of with this kind of condescending look toward an unsophisticated culture, right? And look at that, and I wonder how many, if they're motivated to look at that show that way, I wonder how many of them might have had a tinge of envy as the show ended, and they looked, and maybe there was that sort of nagging question of, that's not what we see at our table. We don't see that kind of joy and laughter and genuine enjoyment of one another in the grace of family. And I think the Apostle Paul 
in the closing of this letter, it feels a little bit like the closing of one of those shows. It, it ends, so you've had three chapters of glorious, majestic, kind of the Himalayas of theology. No imperatives, just, just be amazed at who God is for three chapters. Then it comes in for a landing, and he talks about what does it look for us to, like for us to walk in holiness and walk in love with one another. And then he transitions here to the end, and it's almost like you see the family around the table. And you hear the kind of language that they use and the patterns of speech, and it sounds really healthy, and I think it's meant to make us ask the question as we listen to how Paul talks at the end here, is to ask the question, is that what we sound like as a church family? Does our faith family ring with that kind of mutual enjoyment in Christ and groundedness in the gospel? What Paul lets you hear the church doing is he lets you hear them talk in church. He lets you hear them praying for one another he lets you hear the kind of mutual affection that they have for one another in these deep relationships and that he ends with a word of blessing to the church. So three patterns of speech that mark a healthy church. The first is this, intercession. We uphold one another in prayer. We uphold one another in prayer. So that word pray, at the very beginning of our text, in verse 18 in the original language, that word pray is grammatically connected to a main verb, and the main verb is found in verse 14, and it's the word stand. So stand, putting on the armor, stand, verse 18, praying. It's how we stand. Praying in this text is not just another element of the spiritual armor. That's, that's how probably many of us have been taught Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. The passage about spiritual armor, it's sort of like, hey, put on the helmet of salvation, put on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the shoes of evangelism, right? And, and take up the sword of the spirit, God's word, and pray. And that's, that's your armor all put on. I think prayer actually functions in a different way. It's not just another element in the armor. You have this in your notes. Prayer makes the spiritual armor effective. That's the way prayer is functioning in this text. It makes the spiritual armor work. It makes it effective. My, my best effort to illustrate that is to, uh, to pull up a picture of a warrior that the Apostle Paul never saw and never imagined, and it's this guy right here. Right? So there he is. Perhaps some of the greatest armor in the history of comic books, in the history of the human imagination, is Iron Man. And so he's got armor that has guns in it. He's got armor that has missile defense. He's got armor that has a British person in his ear giving him intel. It's just awesome, awesome armor. But what powers all the armor is that light right there in the center of his chest. It's called the arc reactor. That light goes out. It's just painted metal. It's just, he's just wearing metal, but there's no intel system. There's no missile defense system. There are no guns. There's no jets under his feet. Nothing works when the light goes out, and I think that's kind of what Paul is getting at here with the spiritual armor. Put the spiritual armor on, but if the light's not lit, it's not going to work. The prayer is the arc reactor of the spiritual armor. It powers up the armor of God in the life of the believer, 
That's how Paul is talking about this here. And listen to the sound. So he's talking about prayer filling the church, the church being marked as a people of prayer. Look at the language there in verse 18. Pray, and he's using these universal terms, constant, at all times. So never ceasing, a constant flow. The church is permeated by the language of dependence on God. Every prayer request he uses, he says, every prayer and request, stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. So you've just got a church that's talking. Talking how? Talking to the Lord. Praying for one another. Strengthening one another through the gift and grace of intercession. Paul is saying, I want you talking in church. And I want you talking through the grace of prayer. So the prayers of the church, Paul says, are meant for the church. He says, pray for all the saints. But you keep reading the very next verse and you find out the church isn't just meant to pray for the church. The church is meant to pray for the world. The church is meant to pray for the advancement of the gospel to the places where the church doesn't exist. That's what you see next is prayer powers the engine of gospel advance. Say that again. Prayer powers the engine of gospel advance. Go ahead and look with me at verse 19. Pray also, so he says, pray for all the saints in every way that you can, and then verse 19, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. So Paul says, I want you praying for me as an apostle who's going out in the hopes of planting churches to see people saved and to see people come to the knowledge of the truth. I pray that, I'm asking that when you pray for me, you pray when I, my mouth drops open to start talking, a message may be given me. The beautiful thing here, I think, is that Paul, he doesn't assume anything. He doesn't, he doesn't take that for granted. You and I might take that for granted and say, well, Paul, why would you pray that when your mouth opens, you, the message would come to you? You know the message better than anybody does. It was given to you in a huge way to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, you know, it's not as though Paul is saying, pray for me that when I open my mouth, the message will come because he was afraid that he would have like some kind of failure of memory or that he opens his mouth and he just goes blank and he doesn't know what the message is anymore. That, that's, not his, that's not his heart. He says, I want you to pray for me because I need spiritual power in the delivery of the message of the gospel. He's not assuming that's transferred just because he's got his head wrapped around the truths of the gospel. He says, I want to open my mouth and I don't want to move the air. I want to raise the dead. I want the spirit of God to do what words could never do, however well crafted they might be. I'm praying that when my mouth drops open, the message comes forth with saving energy to blast the doors of unbelief off the hinges. He wants to see something happen that he can't bring about in his own power. He's leaning on a power not his own. Paul is saying, I don't want to convey gospel facts. I can do that anytime. He wants to see people come to faith in Christ. It, this is this is how the church goes to war. We pray for the work of ministry. We pray for the work of mission all throughout our life. That's what we want to do. So, for example, I love the fact that when our elder council meets once a month, the beginning of the meeting is prayer. 
the end of the meeting is prayer, and the middle of the meeting is prayer. It is permeated by prayer. I love that when our whole staff gets together, we have an all-staff meeting once a month, and the first thing that happens is Pastor Dennis says, here's a target that we need to go for in prayer. We need to ask the Lord for strength, and we break out into groups of three or four or five, and we go to work in prayer. We ask the Lord to do what we, what the mechanisms of, of ministry can't bring about in our own strength. We ask God to do what God can do. So Paul is saying, pray for me. I'm going out again. I've done it before, but I'm praying that God would do something awesome. Open hearts. You think about our life together. Um, what do you need as a member of the church? What, what do you... What do you need when your heart is broken? What do you need when sin is too strong for you and it's pulling you down? What you need is you need someone, according to this text, you need someone praying for you. You need a brother, you need a sister who's asking the Lord to strengthen you. Your brothers and sisters talking in church spells strength for your life, according to the Apostle Paul, or else he wouldn't be asking for them to prayer. He's not just giving them busy work. He needs them praying. It's vital for the advancement of the gospel. It's vital for the ministry within the church. So intercession is what we're talking about here, right? The, the grace of God that allows a believer to stand between your afflicted soul and the battering rams of the devil. That's intercession. You put yourself in that place. The Old Testament sometimes used the word standing in the gap between an afflicted soul or an unreached people group and the work of the enemy and you put yourself in that place and you do business with God. That's what Paul is saying. I need the church doing that kind of work. You and I, we're going to need that. You've needed it already if you've been a Christian for any length of time. You've needed saints interceding for you. What happens when you are so weary of the spiritual battle that you can't lift the sword of truth yourself? You are so tired, you can't carry your soul to the throne of grace. Answer in this text is, Paul says, I want the church to carry you there. I want the church to strengthen your arms to lift the sword of truth. Again, believers talking in church is a grace of God. So intercession. Second, affection. You hear affection around the table of the church. We encourage one another as friends. So remember, remember what happened there in Genesis chapter one. So God makes Adam, right? And, and he had been saying each day, as each day passes in creation, he says, it was good. All of that that I just made is very good. And then he comes to Adam and he creates Adam and he says, for the first time, something was not good. It's not good, he says, for the man to be alone. And yes, those words originally opened out onto the very first wedding ceremony in human history, but not all companionship is marital companionship. Yeah, it had to start that way or else that's the only two companions that would ever live. So the first companions, the first it's not good for man to be alone was a man and his wife, but then that gives birth to the reality of companionship that God wanted to mark his people from that time forward. Jesus Christ himself was never married, but it wasn't good for him to be alone either, and so he wasn't. You, you walk with him through the pages of the Gospels, and he's always with friends, right? He spends almost 
all of his time, all of his days, and he's surrounded by a close company of intimate friends. He gives them nicknames. They talk about life. They talk about faith. They do battle together. They, they sleep in the same place. They travel together. It's just this band of brothers. He models that. And it's not, just, it's not just Jesus. It's a call to the entire church to be marked in that kind of way. God made us for friendship. That's the point. God made us for friendship. Apostle Paul was not a lone ranger apostle. He didn't come and kick the saloon doors open, you know, gunslinger all by himself. He's always surrounded with people. You read the end of all of his letters and he's saying, look who's with me. This guy's with me. This lady's with me. I'm sending this person to you. He's surrounded by gospel friends who administered at his side and fought at his side spiritual battles. We're meant to have, church, deep relationships in the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ who can finish your sentences. Brothers and sisters in Christ in whom you can confide with your, your hardest things, your deepest struggles, and you can share that with them. Friends who will affirm God's call on your life, God's hand on your life, who will speak and say, I can see God, evidence of God's grace in you. When you can't see it in yourself, I'm gonna start talking to you about what I see God doing in your life. That's the gift of encouragement. My, my daughter was at, Ellie was at a, a birthday party. This was the, they had all kinds of fun as you often do at birthday parties. But in addition to that, there was something pretty strange for this birthday party. And the birthday girl herself said, before we get back to the kind of festivities and all the stuff, she said, um, I just want to point out things in each one of you of what you've meant to me in my life. And she just said, I'll just start with you. And she just said specific things about this friend of hers. And then she moved to this one. And then this one. 29 friends. Specific words of what it's meant to be your friend. This has been grace to me. I just thought, what a, what a wonderfully Christian instinct that is. The Apostle Paul does that all the time. Read Romans chapter 16, and he's just naming names of people you've never heard of. Phlegon, Ampliatus, Rufus, and Rufus's mom, right? All these people, he's just naming them. He said, they stood with me. I needed these friends in Christ. Tychicus was Paul's friend. Tychicus, his parents gave him the name Lucky. That's what his name means in Greek, Lucky. And uh, many commentators believe that that Tychicus was the one who was the scribe for the letter of Ephesians. In other words, if we could have found the original manuscript of Ephesians, we would see Lucky's handwriting. And so he would have written this letter down, and oftentimes it's believed that the Apostle Paul would take the letter before it was done, after he had dictated it through his scribe, and he would take the letter himself and he would sign it with his own hand. And maybe some of even the parting comments might have been written by the hand of the apostle himself, which would have been interesting in this particular case because perhaps Paul would have dictated to Tychicus everything up till Ephesians 6, verse 20, and then maybe Paul took, maybe Paul took it and started to write these words. Look at verse 21. Tychicus, and maybe he looks up at Tychicus, kind of a small sort of smile out of the corner of his eye. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I am sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are 
and to encourage your hearts. And Paul, in other words, Paul doesn't want Tychicus to hand them this letter. By the way, he would have delivered the letter too. He doesn't want them to hand this letter to the church at Ephesus without Paul saying, hey, Ephesus, let me tell you about the guy who's holding this letter. He is a dearly loved brother. He is a faithful servant in Christ. Follow this guy's example. He's not just a courier. He's a faithful servant in the Lord Jesus. You sense this deep relationship, don't you? You sense the affection Paul had for Tychicus. Is that what it sounds like around our table? Is that what it sounds like in your small group? This kind of language of affection when we talk about other believers or when we talk to other believers? Is, is it awash with that kind of language to where if the world listened in on your small group, if the world listened in on your talk about your brothers and sisters in Christ, would they, would they listen with a tinge of envy? That's not how we talk. They, they're different. Romans 12, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. Here's the next point. God designed the church for deep fellowship and missional partnership. Deep fellowship and missional partnership. So the reason Tychicus can not only deliver the letter, but Paul says he's going to tell you everything about me, how things are, and the status of the gospel mission. He was running the missionary slideshow. Tychicus was that guy. And the reason he could be that guy is he, he, was, he was Paul's ride-along. Right? Tychicus was there in Acts chapter 19 when the riots broke out. The silversmith said, attack him. And they were pointing at Paul. Tychicus was right there. Tychicus was one of the seven people who was called from that particular place. And, and they joined one another on the dangerous journey to Jerusalem to bring desperately needed financial resources to starving believers in Jerusalem. Tychicus was one of the seven in that band of brothers carrying those resources to starving believers there in Jerusalem. Tychicus was there when they got to Jerusalem and Paul got arrested. Tychicus saw it all. He was a co-belligerent. He was a comrade in the mission of the gospel. Tychicus is mentioned five times in Paul's letters. And yet he's one of those unsung heroes, right? Few of us know his name. If you watch Lord of the Rings, there's kind of the big names that everybody knows, even if you haven't necessarily watched the movie, you kind of know, you've heard about Frodo, you've heard about Aragorn, maybe Gandalf, Gimli, Legolas, those are kind of the, the big guns. And then you've got Merry, and you've got Pippin. And they're, they're there, they're not as valiant in battle, but they are faithful, they are fighting, they are right alongside, they're not going anywhere. And I think of Tychicus as Merry. He's kind of that guy, right? Matter of fact, one of my favorite quotes in the whole book, in the whole series of Fellowship of the Ring is from Mary. It's not captured in the movie, but it's in the book. And here's what Mary says to Frodo. So he's alongside her, walking with Frodo toward darkness. And Mary says this, you can trust us to stick with you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. You can't trust us to part when the darkness pulls in. We're gonna be there at your side because we're friends. And Paul wants that to be the atmosphere, the culture of the church. It's not these shallow relationships, it's deep gospel 
partnership. Let me ask you the question, whose Tychicus are you? Who's stronger because you're in their ear? Who are you holding up by your prayers? Who are you holding up by your encouragement? Whose spiritual gifts are you fanning into flame? Who's the person you're calling out their gifts and you're affirming God's call in their life? That is what Paul did for Tychicus. So Paul had a number of different times where he was commissioning people out, right? We've done that here at Brook Hills. We do that with some frequency in a given year is we'll have a commissioning service where we're sending someone out to serve on the field, serve Jesus Christ in this way or that way. And Paul did that all the time. He was commissioning people to go and care for the flock over here and go and do mission and plant churches over here. But Paul's last commissioning service is actually captured for us in the last letter that he ever wrote. Right before he was executed, he wrote 2 Timothy. And we get to read the actual transcript of his last commissioning service. You know the last person he commissioned? Tychicus. Here's what he said, 2 Timothy 4.12. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. He's sending Tychicus to this congregation because he knows this guy's gonna be a massive encouragement to your lives as brothers and sisters. He's been that to me, I'm sending him to you. Wait for it, he'll be there soon. Why did he send Tychicus? Because Tychicus knew how to talk in church. Tychicus knew what was going on in the mission, why it mattered, and he knew how to encourage the hearts of believers toward that. Language of intercession around the table language of affection around the table, and finally, language of benediction around the table. We bless one another in Jesus' name. The, the people of God have been the people of the spoken blessing from the beginning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That word of benediction was spoken a thousand years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. It rides the whole story of the covenant community as a story in which people look at other people and say, bless you in Jesus' name. Bless you in the name of Yahweh, our Lord and our God. May his peace be your guard. May his grace be your strength. May he shield you on every side. May he go before you and behind you. These are, this is the language of the people of faith. This is how we've been talking around the table for thousands and thousands of years. We use our words to strengthen. We use our words to remind one another of our primary identity. We're God's people. We belong to him. We've been shown grace. Look at the language and how Paul uses it in verse 23. Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the takeaway. Our patterns of language are to be infused with gospel kindness. Our patterns of language are to be infused with gospel kindness. What is Paul saying at the end of this letter? He's saying the same thing he says at the end of every letter. He's saying, brothers and sisters, good news. You're the people of God. You have peace with God. For all that's wrong in the world, you're right with God. You'll never know the business end of his wrath. You have peace with God. 
And God loves you, not because of anything that you've done, any works that you've done, any spiritual performance. He loves you because you believed. Love with faith. You simply believed in what Jesus Christ did and grace moved in on your soul and made you its own. That's the story we're living in. So he's saying peace from God is yours, church. God's love is yours. And then he says the greatest word in the Christian lexicon, grace. Grace to you. Grace to all of you who have an undying love for Jesus Christ. This is, this is the best word in the Christian vocabulary. Grace. Grace, it's been sung. God's grace. Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace. Grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. That's the language of the church. That's the way we sound when we talk around the table. We say, I know you're weary. Grace will find you. God is going to be gracious to you because he showed us his grace by putting his son on the cross in our place to absorb our judgment for us. This passage, friends, is not a history lesson. It's not just, hey, how did they talk back there in those different times in the first century of the Roman Empire? No, this is a pattern for our language today. All those people, they're buried somewhere in modern-day Turkey. It's, it's not just for that. It's saying, imitate this. Let this be the, the culture in the church. I almost named this message a window into the wonder that is the church. You read this text, I hope like me, I hope you feel, I, I don't want paper church. I don't want glossy brochure church. I want this. I want this to be the sound that's at the table, at the faith family table, a church that prays for one another, that doesn't rob you of the gift of intercession, but lifts one another up in that kind of way. Why do we need that? Because church is powerless without prayer. Church is powerless without prayer. We want to be a church where we outdo one another in showing honor. We're affirming God's grace. I see evidence of his work in your life. Keep walking in repentance. Keep believing. Let's press on in perseverance together. Let's pursue one another as confidants and friends. Why do we need that? Because church is lonely without belonging. Church is lonely without belonging. And then a church where we say to one another, you might forget a lot of things. The older we grow, you might forget a lot of things. I'm not gonna let you forget who you are in Christ. I'm not gonna let you forget our identity that we have in Christ. We have known peace from God, love from God, and grace from God. Our family name, the name that's written on the front door of the house is redeemed. That's your name. Nobody can unwrite it. Hells of demons can't unwrite it. That's your name. And that's Paul, why Paul situates us here around the family table at the end of this letter to say, listen to the church talk. Listen to the people pray for one another. Listen to the mutual shared affection and deep friendship. Listen to the blessing and benediction in Christ's name one to another. Why do we need this? Church is powerless without prayer. Church is lonely without belonging. And church is nothing without grace. 
We lose the gospel, we lose the ball game. We lose the gospel, we lose everything. This is, this is the, the gem at the center of the church. It's why every Sunday we wanna sing ourselves more deeply into the truth of God's grace to us in Christ. When we pray, we wanna thank God for God's grace to us in Christ. When we preach the word, we want every text to connect to God's grace to us in Christ. That's us holding on to the center. And then when we leave the gathering, we take God's grace in Christ to the world and we say, pray for me that when my mouth pops open, the message is given with saving power. That's a, that's a gloriously vibrant, life-giving church.